new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening and thanks for continuing to listen if you've uh, listened to our past episodes. Uh, again, we really appreciate that. To all our listeners across the globe, hello. Um, so today we have with us A. Olivia Nelson, and she is a two-time widow in her 20s who in the span of five years, uh, she said goodbye to family and friends alongside major non-death losses. Having to face grief in a variety of situations, she gained deep insight into our broken grief culture. Grieving people lack support, and those who want to help don't know how. To heal this gap, Nelson formed Learning About Grief, a website on which she shares personal stories, coping resources, and a virtual grief group for the bereaved and their supporters. Her vision is to change how we perceive grief. And you can find her on Instagram, at Learning About Grief, and on Twitter, learn about grief or learning about grief.com. Olivia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk to you. And I found you through Instagram. You did a post on grief dreams recently. And this is why I love Instagram so much because like I can follow a hashtag and you hashtag grief dreams, which is I think great because there's so many different ways to talk about these dreams and to label them. And so I'm just curious you know, why do you label them grief dreams? Is this something that you heard that term prior? Yeah, it's actually really interesting because I can't necessarily remember if I've posted about dreams on Instagram or anywhere outside of maybe like a journal or something or maybe share with a friend. So it's just funny how social media and the world universe kind of connects us. I labeled them as grief dreams just because the people that were in the dream, they had died. And so I just figured there was some association there between death and grief and dreaming. And yeah, so I, I figured that it all made sense. <laughs> it does make <laughs> sense. That's why we label our platform and all the stuff around that too. So it's cool <laughs> when, you know, someone that doesn't even know you also, you know, doesn't even know about your work, still like labels it that too. So you know, we're on the right path. This is starting a movement <laughs> on how to Correct. <laughs> collectively call these dreams because there's so much, right? There's these dreams where the deceased is in it, but then there's these other dreams where it re does reflect grief too. So it's like just a broad term, but I'm glad people are starting to use it because then people can find resources a lot more easily you know, through that. So I just want to thank you for posting that. And we'll talk all about, I know you've had your dreams and on the post it said, you, know, you always get asked about these types of dreams. So I think we'll, we'll ask about those later on in the show, but I want to actually go back and really understand your story because when we talked prior, there's so much to it that I just couldn't believe in the amount of deaths and who died in your life and such a young age. And as you said, like you lost two, well, actually it was like four people within like four or five years. And it's just insane for me on how one can even deal with that. But you have, and here you are going to be able to talk about it. So can you go back to probably that first loss and your relationship with, it was, who were you with at that time? So, yeah, it is really interesting. It's, you know, when we think about death and dying, we say that it's going to happen to everyone, and it often does, um, unless you, unfortunately, or maybe not even unfortunately, but pass first. But in my instance, um, I go back to 2017, and I say two-time widow, but I used to use it with quotes because um, I wasn't yet married. So in 2017, the boyfriend that I said I knew that I would marry and 
we talked about it. His family still talks about it. Passed away unexpectedly. And it was really shocking. It was my first real encounter with grief. Up until then, I had heard about people um, who were distant relatives, who I've only met like once or twice to come from a huge family. Maybe they passed away or somebody that my parents knew growing up. When I was younger, my grandfather did die, but I was around eight or nine then. And the way we perceive grief for a grandparent when we're eight or nine is completely different when we're older, much less in our 20s and our significant other passes. And so it was a complete shock when he passed. And I just had to learn really the hard way about this is grief or what is grief and what does this process look like? And so where were you at that time? So I'm I'm curious about your relationship with him and, you know, what you saw moving forward with him, because I think those, that understanding really helps, I think, understand your grief a lot too, on where you saw your life heading. Correct. My grief story is really bizarre, not in the fact of losing two people and so young, but just a lot of the parallels. And so for instance, back in 2017, um, Jason and I, we were actually about four to six weeks away from relocating from where we grew up in New York to moving down south into the Carolinas. And so it was really like an upended world, right? Because not only did I lose him, but even though we were really excited about the move and had planned it for about roughly a year, it's also the loss of familiarity, of being home and friendships and family and everything built back where we grew up. And so we were planning for the long haul. We said, okay, sometime in 2016, we're going to start planning to relocate. We're going to build our life there. We were looking for the long term. Um, I think probably like a week or two prior to him passing, we were actually starting to look at engagement rings. And his mom let me know later on that he actually showed her a ring. The whole family knew um, when he passed, people that I hadn't even met yet they knew about me and they knew his plans for us. And so it was a really deep relationship and it was completely shocking. And I could say what in 2017, we were planning for the move and I kind of went back and forth. Should I move after his loss? Should I stay home? What should I do? And I said, you know, this is the plan. I'm just going to go with the plan. And so four to six weeks later, after we buried him and he died and still in the thick of things, I ended up relocating and ending my whole entire life to move to the South. Wow, that is intense. I don't know if I would be able to do that. So what, what like, I guess the question is, you know, what made you decide to actually go through with it? Because that's a lot of work, especially since you're, you're grieving. There's so much on your plate. And to do that alone, right? Like to not have him, which was the whole reason for the big move and to be together and start this new life. Right. It was a really, really hard decision. Uh, like I said, we have been planning it for roughly a year. And oddly enough, it's it's so strange. But when I had first met him years prior, somehow we, we were just friends. And I think we had known each other maybe like two or three on two or three occasions. And we, the question came up of, would you ever leave New York? And I said to him, well, maybe if I move to down south, maybe I would probably move to this state or that state. And he said, no way. I always said that if I would leave New York, I would probably go to one of those places too. And so it almost seemed like predestination for us to make this move. But after he died, 
with grief, sometimes it's really hard to make a decision. What should I do? What should I not do? Should I stay? Should I go? Navigating everything is just so difficult when we're trying to navigate not only the everyday situations, but the funeral planning and people's questions and trying to make sense of things. And I knew that I had this one constant that for the past year, we did everything we could in our best ability to make sure that this move went smooth. And I felt it was actually going to be more work to stay than to leave. And I just felt, let's go for it with the dream and see what happens. And I said, death was really unexpected. So let's make this move that was expected and see how it all pans out. What was it like when you did move? Like, did you, were you able to, did the other things come up in the sense of your grief that maybe you didn't have prior? It was kind of interesting. I remember the first day that I woke up in the new home and I just had this overwhelming feeling of you should be here. And I remember seeing cars coming to the complex of where I was living and I kept thinking, I shouldn't supposed to be seeing your car. Like you're supposed to be pulling up and I'm opening the door and this is the new life that we're supposed to have. And it was really interesting because I could only grieve the things that should have been or could have been or would have been and not anything that was in that place. One thing that I think actually helped me in my grief was that the place was so new, we hadn't built any memories there. So I could only imagine what life would have been like rather than be triggered by everything that would already once once between us two. And so it was just a really interesting experience. It was being able to make new friends and make new opportunities. And even the people that I met, I had to re- keep telling my grief story and say, yeah, this is what happened to me. Or maybe I didn't tell them at all. Versus back home, a lot of people knew um, if I went to the beach, which I absolutely adore going to, or if I went to a bookstore or just my hometown or his hometown, there was memories everywhere. So I think having that physical detachment from location kind of helped bring some ease, but it definitely wasn't without challenges. That's so interesting that you say that. We had a a past guest on, uh, Erica Buist, who after her father-in-law passed away, she went, uh, she traveled, she went to different death festivals. And it, just like you said, it eased, I guess, eased the grief somewhat in in her own words. And yeah, uh, she wrote a book about that. But yeah, that's, that's really interesting to see. And then she came back uh, to London. And so did you end up back in New York? Yes. So to add to all the bizarreness, and just to give you a timeline. So Jason, he died in February. And then I moved roughly around the end of March, beginning of April. And when I relocated, I actually had a job. Um, the job that I was leaving back in New York, I had been there for several years. It was a really good position. Nothing was wrong with the job. I was very, very well loved there. It was extremely supportive. And it was hard to leave. But again, I was just going with the expectation of what we had planned. And so when I actually settled into the new home, two weeks later, when I started the job, the new job, they pulled me into the office and they said, I'm sorry, Olivia, but we actually had a hiring 
miss um, a hiring order. Um, and the way that it worked out and he kind of paused in between, he said, well, there's no easy way to say this. We made a mistake in the hiring process and we have to let you go. What? And <laughs> I never will forget that. I thought I just relocated my entire life um, to come here. And it was my first time being like laid off or being go of. I always had steady work. And so it was really bizarre. And I would never forget this day because it just so happened to be Jason's birthday. Oh my goodness. And so when I say it was two weeks, like some people were like, really two weeks later? I'm like, no, it was literally two weeks to the day that I started because I, I just remember it was on his birthday and I remember the day that I started. And it was really bizarre. So now I go back home and I'm thinking, okay, so Jason has died. And then two weeks after that, my uncle had died. And then I'm thinking, then I relocated. So even though it was happy, there's still some loss. Um, even if Jason had went, there's still loss of, like, again, of being home where you grew up. And now I'm thinking, and now what? My, I lost my job? Like, how does this work? And so it was really bizarre. So when I say that I'm no stranger to grief, um, it's really grief on different aspects. There's the death aspect and also the non-death losses that sometimes we don't consider also. Yeah, oh, 100%. And that move, that change to a different state, you know, leaving your friends and family and then having your hopes and expectations and, okay, this is a new page forward and, you know, in, in, in the chapters in my book and then have it shut down again is is hard. It's, it's, it's a tough, tough experience for you to go through. Wow. Absolutely. And, you know, with me being a writer, I always think of life as a story. And so the best way I could describe it is that while I didn't quite know how the ending was supposed to be, I at least knew how the next chapter was supposed to be. It's so, okay, we're in New York, and the next chapter is supposed to be in this next state. And then that chapter, there's this new job and this new life and these new things that we had planned in this place. And so when he died, it's like the whole rest of the book that I had planned completely has to be rewritten because essentially a character got killed off. Yeah. And so when you keep writing and then it's like, oh, well, the job is lost. Okay, well, that's going to affect the rest of the chapters. And so it's really interesting is you're constantly rewriting in grief. You already had the story planned out. You don't know exactly how it's going to go. You leave some creative liberty. But when something drastic happens, you go, well, now what? What happens next? Right. And oftentimes we don't know what happened next. It's literally a word by word moment, a moment by moment, day by day thing where we're trying to figure it out. That's so interesting. You've said like as a writer looking at it through like as if it's a chapter of a book and what that does and how you have to rewrite your expectations on, on where the story is going. I think it's fascinating. First of all, like how crazy that is that you lost your the job in such a weird fashion, a hiring mistake, which is such, so weird. <laughs> yes. But it, then, it like, so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard of that. But uh, the person that would have supported you through that isn't there, right? He would have helped you cope and gained a little kind of understanding throughout the difficult transition. But Correct. so, what did you do instead? Did you write? Like, were you writing a story at that time? Like, how did you cope? And did you use writing at all in that time? Right. So I've always been a pretty creative person. In fact, it's it's actually funny. I remember when Jason and I, we were packing up 
boxes and getting things ready. And I said, you know, maybe if we have to do two shipments, I'll send all my art stuff because I, I love to do art. Um, I'm a musician. I've been playing piano since, I don't know, probably like five years old. And so I said, maybe I'll ship all that stuff first. And he goes, no, absolutely not. That's like your your peace time. That's your kumbaya. Um, that is your coping mechanism for everything with the world or just, you know, just your relaxation time. And so it's actually funny because when I went back home that day and then the weeks after the job loss and in processing all of this stuff, that's actually what I leaned on. I went into a lot of art, into a lot of my music. Um, I took a lot of walks. One thing that, I, again, I had the advantage of is that the place I lived itself wasn't triggering. It was just imagining what could have been, again, not what was. And so I went out and I was doing a lot of exploring, trying to learn the city and trying to meet some new people. And it was really interesting process, but I think the mix of it all helped me to cope. That's interesting. That's very interesting. No, I, uh, <laughs> I'm just looking at this. And so like you're, you're in this, you're in this city, you don't know, and you know, it's very hard for, I'm guessing friends and even family to support you at that time. Did you find ways to be able to talk to people did you join a, a grief group like what what happened in that time because i know you're one of the things that you do now is try to educate people so i'm just wondering if you had that yourself or was it lacking in the community at that time right so one reason why i started learning about grief and why i'm so huge on grief education is because when jason died i didn't know what was right i didn't know what was wrong and often not everything has to be constituted in black and white or right and wrong. Some things simply just are. And that is how grief is. And one thing that I kept noticing is that people had all these platitudes and comforting, but not so comforting things that they tell you in grief, like, oh, well, you're young, you'll find someone else, or, well, at least you weren't married yet, or at least you didn't have children, or, hey, look, you're moving to a new city, maybe you'll meet someone new. And I think one thing that's really interesting about being in your 20s and losing a significant other is that most of your peers have no idea what you're going through. A lot of them haven't experienced a deep loss. Um, a lot of them haven't even thought about the idea of what it is to lose a significant other. I know some people maybe in their, like, their 40s or 50s and 60s, sometimes they say that in my experience, they had those conversations or they're more keen on, hey, this person could pass away or maybe this person's having health challenges. So it's kind of coming from the back burner to the front of the mind. But when you're 20, life is good. Nobody's thinking about dying. And so your friends, they are like, hey, well, just view it as a breakup. And you're like, eh, well, somebody dying in the peak of the relationship when everything was great isn't exactly a breakup. There's no like, hey, I'm better off without you now. So that's an interesting aspect. Uh, when I was in the Carolinas, one thing that I was really seeking for was a community of people who look like me. And I didn't find that. And so I was trying to find people who understood grief. And what I kept coming into is that there were people who were grieving, but not being supported. And there were people who actually did want to support those people, but they simply didn't have the tools or resources or the language to know how to stand in that place. 
And so I didn't realize it then, but now in retrospect, as they say, all things hindsight 2020, what I realized this process really prepared me to learn and how to educate people on how to build that bridge between, okay, you're grieving and you want to support. This is how you two can be connected. Yeah, that's uh, so interesting. Uh, you know, your experiences that you talk about, because they are, they are common in a lot of ways in terms of people not being supported and disenfranchised types of grief. And, and yeah, you, you made a very valid point in terms of young people. And if they haven't gone through that, like, obviously, if you're younger, you just, you know, the odds are you just experience loss less right. um, from that standpoint, and even your peer groups. And it just, it's also common where people say things that, you know, to, to try to make you feel better, but they might not be helpful at all. And <laughs> that's just that's another thing that's unfortunate. So it's really um, like, you know, looking at this and the work you do now um, for you to understand that gap and to, and to want to create a space there and to, to help educate, really, to help educate people on the best way to do it. And we come across that in our work in terms of different types of grief, uh, disenfranchised grief, you know, whether it's pet loss or, you know, child loss or, or different types, just different forms. And uh, it is sometimes it's it's crazy to hear how we just don't know in a lot of ways. We just aren't taught or educated on how to support those around us. Yeah, Absolutely. And that's why I remember even starting out, I said, well, am I a grieving girlfriend? Am I a widow? Like, what What am I? I'm like, I'm not yet married, but the plan was to get married. And going through the process, I realized that whether you were dating, engaged, married, whatever the relationship status is, that loss is loss and partner loss is partner loss. And it's not easier or harder if you're younger or older. It's just different. And sometimes yeah. we like to make a hierarchy or people like to comfort you. And the fact that, oh, well, you were married for 40 years. Look at all the life that you had. And it's like, yeah, but they're still gone. Or, well, look, you're young and you can have the opportunity to be with someone else. And you're like, yes, but they're still gone. And so I think if we start listening to the conversations that we have with people who are grieving, and we focus more on the loss and less on trying to push them out of the loss with happiness that they can't see or they're not. If we just meet people where they are, then that process is just enlightening in and of itself. Um, I often like to explain it as peanuts. Um, I actually have a friend who's like really allergic to peanuts. And I said, if me and my friend are going out and we're walking down the street, just hanging out, and she goes, I'm really hungry. The first thing I want to do as a friend is to get her food. So if I go in my backpack and I said, hey, I know this is not going to be enough, but I have some peanuts. Would you like to eat them? And she goes, hey, I really appreciate that, but I'm actually really allergic to peanuts. Well, I'm not going to insist that she eats the peanuts. While it may fill her hunger, or it may not, it actually has more negative effects if she consumes it. So as a friend, I'm going to look around with maybe a half chips or maybe we can stop at Dunkin' Donuts or maybe we can stop at the mall and grab food or somewhere else. The natural instinct is that if something is harmful to someone to eat, we're going to find another route to provide that need. Well, in grief, I often feel like 
the bad sayings of, well, at least this or that, or look on the bright side, or all these other things that people on the grieving side often receive are kind of like the peanuts, where the griever goes, well, I know you're trying to help and you mean well by saying these things, by handing me these peanuts, but they actually make me feel worse. And so often what happens is this post supporting people, they get frustrated that you just won't take the peanuts. Why won't you just eat them? Why won't you just look on the bright side? And rather than trying to find an alternative of how they can support or saying, what can you eat? What does help? Well, let me listen to you to figure out a better solution. In fact, they just walk away and they leave altogether. And so that's the way that I really like to explain it is that stop pushing peanuts on grieving people. Just find out what else can help them get what they need at that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good analogy, and it's it's apt in terms of like we don't understand sometimes the harm that we're causing those people that we're trying to support. But if we just take the moment to to if you take a moment to listen and just hear their story and and just try to be empathetic in that way, I think that does a lot in terms of helping that individual rather than pushing some sort of narrative or trying to make them feel better because like you said it's probably not going to work you know i'm just thinking in in my head of another situation and uh, pet loss is like that where you know if you have one of your uh, pets die and someone comes up to you and they say something like well they lived a long life or (laughs) Oh, you know, they, they, um, you know, you can just get another one or, you know, well, at least, you know, good thing it wasn't your kid or, I mean, God forbid somebody say that, but like, but like, you know, this, that's why I think a lot of people who have pets die aren't as open to go ahead and share that with everybody or to show their sadness. I would see that being one way that why someone who has an animal die wouldn't be as open to that because it would hurt so much to have someone, you know, dismiss it. And that's what happened to you where they're dismissing it by saying things like, well, you know, you're young and you can find another person to fall in love with and this or that. Well, that's not acknowledging what you did have and and the beauty around it and the love you had around it. Absolutely. And it's a a lot of times people say that, you know, you'll find love afterwards, but dating after loss is a completely different experience, especially when you have possible anxieties of will this person die or this person is new, but there's always those past things that trickle in the new relationship that you think about. This is actually very interesting because I... I'm really just really curious on how that was for you, like starting a new relationship and bringing in the loss and also your, I guess, new partner's um, willingness to sit with you in those moments. Or was it something that you hid from? Because it's such a complex situation. I've heard, you know, sides of both where people try to hide their loss to try to like put the other relationship like ahead and other people had partners who want to validate their loss like throughout the process. So I'm just curious what, what you had. Right. Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned that because when I speak to a lot of people who go through partner loss, again, and when I say partner, it could be married or unmarried. 
and something that they often talk about. I was, you know, dating this person and they said, well, you still seem really sad that this person passed away. Are you ready to date? Which is a fair question. But then they go, well, you're still sad about it. I know it's been a few years. I don't think that you're ready to. Or the aspect of can this person handle the family that came with this person? Maybe, you know, that person was married and they have in-laws. Or in my case, I was extremely close uh, to Jason's family. We would actually have Sunday dinner almost every single Sunday. I remember when he died, I was speaking to his mom and I said, nobody's going to tell me I love you every day. It's just, you know, one of the things that we think about. And she goes, I will. And literally up until last year, it's been four years since he passed. Literally up until last year, she probably texted me, I love you every single day. And never missed a day. And so it's just those thoughts of, well, I want to bring those people forward into my life. They've been here. They're my family. I call her mom. I call his brother's brothers, his father, father. And so it becomes, well, will this new person accept this? How will they feel? Um, one thing that I had told Michael, I said, well, you do know that there's no competition with the dead man, right? And he started cracking up laughing. He said, yeah, well, definitely, absolutely. Um, but he was really, really good with it. But I know that the way he handled my grief is not always how everyone in a new relationship handles with grief just from going a few dates prior to him and also just hearing other people's experiences that it wasn't that great, unfortunately. It's a complicated thing because I think sometimes, again, everybody's grief is different and there's so much involved in nuances in that. But I've heard, I've heard situations where people in new relationships and the new partner can't handle certain things or just doesn't understand certain things like maybe old pictures uh, of that person up or maybe things that person doesn't want to throw away like clothing or this or that. And they make statements that are sometimes hurtful like, I can't believe, you know, this person's not over it or, or you know, they, they should be over it or they, you know, they put their own ideology and perspective on what grief is and how someone and timelines and how someone should heal from that on to the other person. But that's, that's kind of, that's unfair because again, everybody's journey is different. So it kudos for your new partner for, you know, providing a space for you and op being open to that. Cause again, it could be challenging on, on different levels. There's, there's a lot, there's probably a lot of emotions at play. Uh, when it comes down to dating someone after you've lost someone. Absolutely. Um, just in you saying that, I, I never forget, it probably went like on a date or two. And actually in my car, I have this little necklace and it has Jason's face on it. And it just hangs. I, my, his mother gave it to me at the funeral. I think I wore it for about a week and I left it in a car and I never moved it. Unless I'm cleaning the car or something, of course. And he, the person had said, well, it's been some time now. Are you going to take the photo down? And I was like, well, I'm not sure. I said, honestly, I said, because I, I can understand in some ways. I said, well, I said, I do have a lot of photos, um, whether printed or on my phone. I said, I don't plan on ever deleting any of them. I can't get them back. And I said, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be in your face. So that's a happy compromise that I was 100% okay with. And I was in a really good spot with my grief. 
And I remember that person saying, I don't, I don't think I can deal with that. And so it's up to that person who is the griever, right, to make that decision. Well, can I be with someone who can't handle my grief? Because grief is forever. It's going to pop up. And no matter how healed you think you are, it's going to show up maybe when you go on a date in the same area or maybe when that person's birthday comes up or an old anniversary or somebody that you haven't seen in a while um, sees you and mentions them because either they don't know that you're in a new relationship or they didn't even know that person passed. Somehow grief always comes back. Um, It's never something that we're completely finished with and it does become different but it's always present. And so I just had to make the decision, well, you seem like a great person, but I understand and respect your boundaries and what you can and cannot do. And I respected that person for being vocal about it. And I was vocal about it and didn't work. Um, I do remember speaking to about grief and loss and all these things with Michael. And he was completely accepting. Um, I remember when Jason's birthday came up, he said, do you want to go celebrate? Do you want to do something? Do you not want to do anything? Do you want to lounge around? Do you want to be here yourself? He gave me all these different scenarios. And I said, whoa, I already haven't even gotten that far yet. Um, he actually went to go meet Jason's parents. We actually had dinner with them once or twice. And it was just like the most beautiful thing. And he ended up calling his parents mom and dad. And we became like this one huge, big, happy family. And so I feel like that's the best case scenario. I know that's not everyone's situation, but I would just forewarn people, if you date someone who has experienced loss, are you going to be able to support them when they need? And as a person who is experiencing the loss, are you going to be okay with being someone who is going to dismiss your grief and maybe not acknowledge it um, because it will show up? And how will you deal with that when it does? Those are great comments. And yeah, you're right. Like people have to be able to set their boundaries. And I can see many people who have a hard time setting boundaries will minimize their grief or push it away for someone else. But it's really about understanding yourself and what you need. And if something doesn't work, it doesn't work. And to be able to let it go. So I'm just really happy that you had the best case scenario with Michael. Because what a beautiful like man to be able to like, to do that, I'm so proud that he was alive on this earth because you hear so many horror stories and not so many of these very beautiful moments of people's compassion and their ability to sit with people's suffering. And it seems like it wasn't just that. I'm guessing he was just able to sit with you in other forms of suffering too. And I think that is a beautiful aspect of what humans can strive to become. Absolutely. And one thing that I noticed about him, he even educated me in the grief process. Um, a lot of times he would say, well, what is this experience like? Or I know that his birthday is coming up or his death anniversary is coming up. How are you feeling? What would you like to do? Would you like to talk about it? What helps? What doesn't help? He would ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I would say, Am I, is it, are you in an interview? <laughs> and he would go, well, kind of. I'm trying to f- figure it out. He goes, you know, I haven't dealt with this, but you're dealing with it. And so now... Not that it's a problem, but it's our situation. And so just him being naturally inquisitive on how I was doing and what that process was like, it was able to actually have a better relationship because then the grief moments weren't so hard and they didn't last as long because I was supported. We could talk about it or we could not talk about it. We could at least acknowledge it and then we can move through it and go to the happy place. 
And sometimes that doesn't always happen overnight. Um, sometimes, you know, there are growing pains. Doesn't mean that a relationship will be perfect. Um, it never will be, especially around grief. But it doesn't mean that it's easier and that you feel supported. And when both people are supporting one another, everything just becomes stronger. No, that's so true. So what happened with with Michael? So you guys you built this thing, you're you're combining the families and and being able to talk about Jason and then what happened with him? Correct. So it's actually interesting. So um rewinding back a bit to this way it all makes sense because it really when I say it's a bizarre story, it's a bizarre story. So like I said, we're thinking about twenty seventeen at this point and Jason dies. It's the month of February when he passed away and we're about four to six weeks out from relocating from New York to down south. Well, after being down south and going through the grief process and such, I really missed that sense of home and actually came back to New York. Um, I knew that it was going to be a temporary thing, but I just knew that this is where my support club is. Um, this is where home and I don't have to figure things out. Let's just go back home. So I came back to New York. And so when Michael and I, we started dating, we had known each other for some time. We had lost touch. But at that time, he was actually living a few states away. And so we had a long distance relationship. And eventually what happened was we said, okay, we're going to actually come together and do this thing and do it right and do it well. And so we decided that I was going to relocate. And oddly enough, three months after I relocated back down south from New York, he passed away. It was unexpected, completely not foreseen or anything. It was super bizarre. And the crazy part about it is that he died roughly two weeks within the same time frame of when Jason died. So I'm never forget that Michael died February 11th and Jason died February 23rd. And so it was really bizarre that one person died before a relocation, uh, the other person died after a relocation, and they both died in the same month. And so I, I remember I tell myself, okay, maybe I should just like not move anymore. Um, you know, I said it jokingly. Um, I said, maybe I should just stay still because maybe that's, you know, life's trying to give me some signs. And I always joke, I, I love moving around and being in different places and meeting different people. So I, I doubt I'll ever take myself up on that advice. But yeah, it was really unexpected. He was completely fine that morning. And I got a phone call saying that um, an ambulance was called and he was at home and he went to sudden cardiac arrest. And I came home and he was gone. And it was just mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. That is so crazy. And like, it just takes the wind out of your sails because you're just getting back and you're, you found this person to sail with. And then all of a sudden, it's like that boat crashes. And then you're also in a different hometown again. And you're, right. you're like, what is going on? And you try to make sense of all of this. <laughs> As you said, right? Maybe yeah. just like, just I'm not supposed to be moving. <laughs> you're trying to say like, I don't want this right. to happen again. Like, this is insane. Because like once is crazy, but twice, like, like it doesn't make any sense like to happen again. And also in February. And so February just passed from this March right now. Um, what was that like for you to reach February and have 
two losses that come up. It was literally the most insane time. I officially have concluded that I hate the month of February. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if we could go from January 31 to March 1, that'd be great. Anybody who figure out how to do that, just let me know. So it's, it's really, really bizarre. I remember even when like Michael had passed, one, I remember my father, he had called me that asked me a question and he said, oh, let me call you back real quick. And that's in between that call, I ended up finding out that Michael had passed and it was so bizarre. I remember the paramedic had told me and I was actually at work and I remember sitting in my office, closing my door and thinking, what in the world is going on? I was like, what? I was like, is this a prank? I was like, okay, this is not Michael's type of thing, but like, this can't be real life. And I remember my calling, my dad calling back and I was just crying. He was like, are you okay? Like you were just happy, like five minutes ago, like really, really happy. You're having a whole, you know, breakdown. And I said to him, I was like, Michael died. He goes, wait, what? I said, Michael died. He goes, wait, what? He's like, you mean your Michael? Mean our Michael? Like Michael died? And I just to prove how confusing it all was, a lot of times, even now, when we speak about them, sometimes people are like, well, what, why are you sad or what's going on or you know, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm so upset that Jason died. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I mean, Michael died. Or sometimes I'll talk to Michael's mom and I'll be like, yeah, I remember when Jason and I, I mean, Michael and I, and I'll speak to, you know, the other person. I'm like, I remember Michael. She's like, you mean Jason, sweetie? And I was like, oh, yeah. And so at this point, I said, you know what, Michael, Jason, I was like, I love you guys. But if you're listening to me in some other world, you left me. So if I confuse your name, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, with February passing, was really bizarre. And all my dates are, all my important dates, rather, are, are all clunked up. So the last two weeks of January are actually a mix between Michael's birthday and Jason's birthday. And then in February, I have Michael and I's anniversary. I have Michael's death anniversary. And I have Jason's death anniversary. So for about six weeks, I was just in a period of deep grief. And one way, it's great because you get all the hard days out of the way and hopefully you can enjoy part of the rest of the year but in some ways it's really hard too and I realized the best way for me to deal with it was just to lean into grief a lot of times we try to push it out or distract ourselves but when we lean into the moment when we just allow ourselves to feel it's actually easier to feel sad when we feel sad than try to make ourselves so happy that's great advice and it's just allowing yourself to feel what you need to feel and I think even for me you know like as a guy it's still hard in different ways like i have to consciously acknowledge the sadness within and allow myself to have those moments to cry or to mourn or whatever i, I want to do and it's a lot easier when i'm alone than in front of other people which i you know Correct. It's, it's just there right and like i notice it and so if i feel that stuff coming up i really try to get alone so it can process more easily rather than try to force it in front of people but yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And it's a skill. I really do believe it's a skill that we have to really learn to develop in these difficult times because it is so scary and it's, and it's not something that the culture promotes that often. Absolutely. Our, our culture, it's, you know, we, we push people into positivity. I think one of the greatest things that we can change in grief culture, whether you are a griever or someone supporting it, is just to be aware. And we try to plan for the future so much 
that we should get to be present. One of the greatest things that I can say I really learned from Jason was to be present because he was very, very spontaneous and I was very much a planner. And it was really, really great, but then sometimes it wasn't so great. And now I try to be very present. Um, even in, when it came down to Michael, sometimes we would be somewhere and he would say, okay, well, we got an hour left at the museum. And my whole perspective changed. I said, no, we have an hour more together at the museum. I, I measure things by how much time we have more rather than time that we have less. I like to think of things in abundance in that way. Like right now we have, right now, tomorrow we may not have tomorrow. And that really makes you become aware of just time and people and love. And I think that if we become more aware of how we feel, then we can acknowledge that. I really believe that, you know, when a person's alive, we acknowledge the love. Like, okay, I love this person. I like being around this person. And this person makes me happy. Or maybe the person really bothered you that day and they made you angry and you acknowledge that and you voice that. But a lot of times when that person passes, and you feel anger because of grief or frustration or confusion or sadness, we tend to want to suppress those emotions and those feelings and thoughts. And I always say that grief is just love in disguise. It's just taken a different form. And so the best thing that you can do is really acknowledge that and validate that it's real and it's alive and that it's okay. It's part of the human experience. And that when we acknowledge that within ourselves and give ourselves that permission and we give other people that freedom to grieve in the way that they need to grieve, then we can move through it with a lot more ease than if we tried to dismiss it and act like it wasn't even there or nothing ever happened. That's a great point. That's, that's it, There's so many key things you said there. I think um, discussing death and time, like that's one thing, maybe one reason why we're so resistant, if you will, to not only support others, but to kind of talk in general about our own loss, our own grief, but with other people about theirs. I think it's obviously death scares us. And we look at that and say, well, we have a finite amount of time on earth with the ones we love because death is going to happen and it's scary. And I think that might lead to us pushing it away and maybe not, uh, you know, trying to not even look at it, not even think about it, just put it in the corner and say, well, yeah, that'll happen. And I'll, I'll go over there when I need to. But I think discussing it, talking about it, you know, when we talk to people on the podcast about their lost stories, about what happened in their life, like it just makes me appreciate those moments, just like you said, like living in the moment and appreciating where I am now from hearing those stories, from supporting others. And that's, that's just, that's beautiful that, that, you know, you said that in that it's, it's like, it is love, it's grief and it's love. It's all together in a lot of ways and embracing it and saying that like, well, changing your perspective on life and saying, well, I appreciate the moments that I do have. I appreciate the conversations that I do have about it. I think that that definitely will shift your appreciation, I think, and the gratitude for life in general. I agree. And just and my work as a writer, as my work as a communicator, it's essentially the only thing that I've actually done. And I'm really blessed to say that, you know, I am a writer and I am a communicator. And especially in the early years of me writing, a lot of what I wrote about was the hard stuff. 
and I enjoyed it. I really liked writing about the things that nobody wanted to talk about because that's a, these are the things that need to be talked about. These are the things that need to be heard. And it helps people to feel seen and feel validated. And one thing that I can say, the hard stuff will always be hard. It will never be easy. It's not easier to talk about death because the person is alive. It's not easier to talk about death when the person is gone. But when I can say that the confrontations are different and prepare us differently, and if we have hard conversations when we don't need to have them, if we talk about death, well, what do you want? How would you like for me to continue living my life? Or how would you want to have your funeral? Or would you think how you will cope if I wasn't here anymore? Or when we have those type of conversations, it makes the grieving process just a little better in the sense that we can have some closure. I noticed that my widowed friends or just my other friends who experienced loss when they had that type of closure because they talked about death before the person died or they talked about death among their family when that person died or whomever was lost, whether they're a close friend, a parent, a miscarriage, whomever, a pet loss, it was different because they, they already were starting to use language. They were already acknowledging the possibilities of what could be. And again, death is just a human experience. It's just like we wake up, just like we see the sun or we you know go to sleep and we do it all over again. We have to integrate grief and heart conversations into our everyday lives this way that we're prepared for them just a little bit when they actually do arrive. No, it's 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 true, and I'm I'm glad you're able to really discuss that and to to show people that it's okay. And one of the the posts that you did make, I think, it was in that grief dreams post, was that you paid for your partner's phone bill so you were able to text that number, and it, it was supporting for you. So, could you talk about that? And did you do it to both um, individuals, or is it just the one? Um, just the one, and just with. Michael and it was really bizarre <laughs> I get you know I, I always use the word bizarre and I just think that's the best way to describe it um, I remember that actually it's, it's interesting because when we actually became a couple the first the phone bill was like one of the first things that we had actually signed both for our names to and it was one of those things where it's like it's not like a house or a car but it, you know it's something small and so I remember when that phone bill came up I thought, well, it's both of our phones. And I just wasn't ready. Initially, I wasn't ready to shut down his phone because people were still calling it. And there was pictures and there was emails and there were a lot of things that I needed. And then I just continued to pay it. And I think we had those moments in grief where we were like, are you really gone? I can't believe that you're gone. And I would actually text his phone. And it wasn't on purpose. Um, it was, well, I guess it was on purpose. I just kind of I didn't forget that he had died but I forgot that he had died um and then I remember months afterwards I was still paying for it and I was like okay this is ridiculous why are you paying for a dead man's phone and then I started talking about it to other people and they were like yeah I've been paying my husband's phone or my daughter's phone for like five years and I said oh my gosh I said please don't let me be spending all this money on T-Mobile <laughs> for the next five years I said this is ridiculous but it's also not ridiculous right it's just something that helps us in our process 
And it's one of those things that, again, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, as they say, from the inside out, you can't explain it. And from the outside in, you can't understand it. And I just feel like whatever makes that person feel better and is feasible, um, if it's texting that person, if it's writing to that person, if it's speaking to that person, again, there's no right or wrong. There's just what's right for you in that moment. Yeah, and it's interesting because like when my dad died, he never had a cell phone. So for me, like maybe I'll talk to him or something because that's what I normally did. But the culture has mm-hmm. switched, changed so much where texting is one of the main forms of communication between people. And so like when I heard that, I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. You know, like because even before I used to write letters to each other, but we don't really do that anymore. And so even writing to the deceased isn't as, I think, meaningful as maybe a text message to them in the sense of the pattern of how our relationship was. Like it really gets at that and what you used to orchestrate some of the forms of communication. So I think it's interesting. And I'm I'm glad you brought up that other people um, have expressed that they keep it on for five years plus. And I never really, so it's like, I never heard that. I never really got to that point of the conversation, but now I'm going to start asking if people do that more often, just because it is, a very interesting form of continuing bond, which, yeah. you know, which we talk about a lot on the podcast. Yeah. And I just, that made me think of maybe like social media in terms of keeping a person's Facebook page open or an Instagram page or something like that. I bet that would be in a lot of ways used obviously to help grief is keeping that those things um, open and alive. And I guess providing a space for other people to maybe drop comments uh, in remembrance or something like that. Yes, I agree. That's a good point that you put that how people used to write letters and how it's drastically changed as technology has improved. Um, Jason was actually a writer. And so we actually wrote each other letters. And Sometimes we wrote each other's letters, like I'm going to sit down and write to her letter. But more times than not, it was just our writing process. Like I wrote something or I wrote something about you or I wrote something for you or with you in mind. And so this is yours. You get to keep it. Michael, he wasn't a writer. He was extremely creative, but he wasn't a writer. And so a lot of our communication, if not in person, of course, or um, on the phone, it was in text messages. And so just having that time cap so some every now and then I'll just go through text messages and I'll kind of relive old moments and conversations and see videos or pictures and I'm like oh yeah I remember we had that or laugh at old jokes and you know stuff like that I think that social media has been a really good resource for grief and that it connects people um the fact that there's a piece of it where you can be anonymous or you can be as transparent or not trans as transparent as you want to or not it helps. I know a lot of people also create separate grief accounts just because they said the people on this account, they actually understand me and my family and my friends think I'm crazy because I am six months out, a year out, five years out, and they think I should be over this thing. And I think that it's a really great way for us to stay connected and to find some sort of healing. Oh, that's good. And so are, are you, is that phone still active? Are you still continuing to pay that bill or no? Um, well, actually, um, I do freelance writing and stuff, so I converted the phone number over to my freelance freelancing number. Elsewise, I I would have turned it off um, at this point. <laughs> and so, I'm also curious about sort of really the focus of the show, which is grief dreams, and it's it's usually another form of um, a way for people to continue that bond. 
And so I'm curious, you know, what kind of dreams have you had? And did you have them equally with Jason and Michael? Or are they more one and the other? Um, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about it in that regard. I know that I've had dreams about them both. They've been very dreams of messaging and telling. I find the dreams with Michael a bit more interesting and in that he was a dreamer. It was really weird. Um, he would have dreams about stuff and it would happen. Like he would say, hey, I think this is going to happen. I never forget one day he was saying, I think your friend's going to come over. I had a dream that one of your friends was in a great car and they came over and this is what they look like. And then never met the person. So I think I tend to remember the dreams with him more just because it. I always wonder, am I going to like have one of those moments that he had? One of the most recent dreams I can think of is I was kind of in like a banquet hall or a restaurant or something like that. And I remember I was walking around looking for people and I saw these people here and I was like, this doesn't make sense. I thought this person had died. And I was like, okay, well, maybe not. Because the dreams seemed so lifelike. And I remember seeing like current friends who are alive and friends and family who are alive. But I noticed that there was a lot of people at that banquet hall who were gone, but present. You know, these people had passed, but for somehow they were dining with the rest of us and laughing and stuff. And it was just a really beautiful moment. And I remember Michael being there. I remember like specifically searching for him. And I just think it was a really cool moment. It was kind of like an old time thing again, where everybody that, you know, either alive or dead, roll together and having a joyous time together. Oh, that's so cool. And so what was it like when you finally found him in the dream? The odd part is I knew that he was there, but I actually didn't find him. And so that was the bizarre part um, because I was like, well, wait a minute, everybody else is here. Where are you? And I actually bumped into people and they're like, oh, yeah, he's in the back somewhere. And I would go to the back and they were like, oh, he's over here somewhere. And I'm like, OK, he's, he's not here either. And so I remember waking up and kind of remembering it and thinking, well, maybe it's just one of those things where you kind of know that your pre person is always present with you, whether you believe in afterlife or not, is that they're present in the forms of how you love them or the way that you think of them. And I think that we're always somewhat searching for a person after they die always trying to remember what did they say or what would life be like now or would they be proud of me or I wonder what they would be like right now or you know all these different questions that we ask ourselves and that's the way I kind of interpret it that we're always kind of looking for those people who have gone and we kind of we live those experiences when like my sister says you know I remember when Michael came over the first time and you said you didn't like coffee, and I was really upset, but he loves coffee, and he was just my coffee buddy. And she's like, when I drink coffee, I think of Michael. And I was like, I guess that makes me feel pretty good. And we talk about those stories, or I think about the time when we would go to the beach, and he goes, you know, I've never been to the beach with so many people. And if I go hang out with my father and we go to the beach, we'll talk about how the three of us used to hang out. And so I kind of visualized that dream is that every time I went to a new person, they would always tell me where he was or they would always share a memory that brought me closer to him. And I thought the great dream was just really unique in that sense. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And yeah, it definitely can reflect that aspect of one's life, 
have you had a dream where you actually got to see him yet? I did. And it was a brief dream where either I just remember it briefly. And it was, I want to say, maybe like a month or two after he passed away. And we were just kind of hanging out. We were at the beach. And then I think we were dancing and stuff. He loves dance. He loved to dance, loved the thing. I would always say that he was an entertainer and he would always say I'm a shy person. And I said, nobody ever will believe that you're shy. and Nobody ever thinks that. And he would just start would laugh. And it was just a dream of like good times and reminiscing and what life once was like at that time. No, that's beautiful. No, I'm, I'm glad you, you're able to have that because you, you feel that love. It just comes in in, in those moments, in those memories. And you can actually you said, like relive them. And that's, you know, Correct. what a beautiful aspect of like to have that in a dream. Because, you know, when my dad died, one of the biggest fears I had was I wasn't going to have any new memories. And the ones I do have, I just couldn't really remember them or have that feeling of being within it. But, you know, like that's what these dreams can do, which is kind of cool. Um, so did you have any dreams of Jason that were memorable? I did. I remember when... Jason died. I was really sad in the beginning, but then I remember being really angry. And I remember even saying to his mom, I said, I'm just so angry, which was really foreign to me because it takes a lot to get me angry. I'm just one of the things that I'm just, a lot has to happen for me to be angry. Like you have to, I don't know, harm a child or an animal or do somebody wrong or something. And I remember saying to her, I was like, I don't know who I'm mad at or what I'm mad at or why I'm mad but I'm really angry. And I remember, even though nobody controls their death, I remember thinking like, you left me? I remember being in the Carolinas thinking like, wow, you you, you really left me at that time. And I remember around that time I had a dream and we were driving somewhere where I, I don't remember. And I just remember him profusely apologizing and saying that he was sorry and that everything was gonna be okay. And I was all going to work out. I remember it just gave me a lot of peace. And I remember we also had like a conversation. I can't even remember the conversation in the dream anymore. I wish I had written it down. That's something I would encourage people to write your grief dreams down because you may want to reflect on them one day. And I just remember having a conversation and brought some closure because that's another thing when you lose somebody traumatically. It's like one moment they're here and they're happy and they're alive and the next minute they're gone. And it doesn't make it easier or worse for people who may have a feeling or maybe got a diagnosis that that person was going to pass away. Just in my experience from the losses I've had, the ones that are traumatic, the ones that you don't expect where they were literally walking and the next minute they die, um, there's no closure. So that dream kind of brought some closure on just the last conversation. Wow, that's beautiful. And it like helped heal the broken heart of the, in, and that anger to be able to have that conversation to bring peace within your mind to then now have to work through the grief in a more, I'd say, easier way because anger doesn't make anything ever easy. It just <laughs> confounds everything and stops <laughs> the process. It. <laughs> no, it takes so much Definitely energy to be angry too. Oh my God. So I'm yeah. curious, as to this date, have you ever had a dream of both of them together in the dream? I have not. It's actually interesting. I haven't thought about that. I don't know if I ever will. I'm not sure what that would ever be like. Sometimes I, I kind of think like 
you know, a sense of an afterlife, like, hey, you two like hanging out and stuff. I never forget when, I want to say maybe like a few months before Jason died, he bought me this book and it's called um, When God Winks at You. And because he'd always call it, he wouldn't say coincidence, he would call it God Winks. And I was like, what? There's no God Winks thing. And he goes, yeah, no, there's a really God Winks thing. And one day we were walking around Manhattan and we saw a table stand and they had a book called When God Winks at You. And I was like, wow, what a coincidence. Oddly enough, I even though I love reading the books, I don't know why I didn't read it. Still have yet to read the book. Now it's harder to read it just because of his passing. But I never forget, it probably was like one of Michael and I's, one of the first three dates or something. And Michael was asking me how I felt about starting a relationship again after loss. And I was like, oh, well, I think I'm in a good spot. I feel okay, you know. You know, give me like a day or so to really assess where I am in this process because I've never done this before. And he said, okay, that you know, that's fair. And he was like, do you think Jason would approve? I think he would prove. And just so happened, we were passing by Barnes & Noble's. And he's like, oh, isn't that an interesting title when God winks at you? And I said, no way. <laughs> yes. it, was so, it was so crazy. I said, why did you pick out that book? And then I started interrogating him. He was like, why are you going crazy over a book? And I said, no, I have to tell you the story. And so I told him the story. And so every now and then um, when I would have a moment, we would have a moment. He was like, see, I think Jason is sending you a God wink. So sometimes I laugh, like, if there's an actor, like, are you guys winking at me? Like, what, what what's going on? But yeah, I that would definitely be an interesting take <laughs> to have them both in dreams. That's a great story, though. I really think that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> All right. All right. So one of our final questions we always like to ask our guests is that if you could have a dream tonight of anyone who has died, what would that dream look like to you? That is so interesting. Um, if I only had to pick one person. You can pick multiple, it's up to you, whatever you want. I think I would go back to the banquet dream, just because literally everybody that I knew had died was there. But if I could make it my way, I would actually have found Michael and Jason. And I guess that would answer your question. Both of them would be in the, in the dream. And I would just sit down and have a conversation. Uh, not even to ask them, like, what happened or what's life like now or anything. I would just want to be like old times just one of those good everyday conversations that we counted as you know regular everyday life (laughs) (laughs) nice what would they both be eating did they have the same kind of appetite at this uh banquet hall or uh, would they be different diners right so it's funny even though it's a banquet hall jason loves cheeseburgers it was ridiculous i've literally i mean if there was a cheeseburger to be made he had it didn't matter funky combinations and all it really didn't make sense and michael he didn't really have a special thing but our favorite snack was cheese and crackers and in fact when the second time he met jesus mom she also brought this huge spread of cheese and crackers just because she knew that he loved it and so yeah i think even though it's like weird food to have at a banquet hall i think if they could have food that's probably what they would both choose <laughs> that's funny that's cool hey it's interesting i'm learning a lot about them today so this is that's why i love asking about dreams right like you just learn these small details that really bring their character out and it feels like you know them a little bit right a little bit more than you would without those details so uh, of course, i want to and it could be very happy 
Well, I'm glad it's going to be a happy dream. <laughs> and they're smiling, they're happy. So at the end of the day, I, I hope you have that dream. And if you do, please let us know. It'd be really cool. Or if you ever have a dream of them together, it'd be very interesting to see what that looks like as you move forward. So where can people find all your stuff again? If they want to get sure. contact or learn a little bit more of what you provide. So the best place to find me is on my website, learningaboutgrief.com. Um, there you can read my full story. You can reach out to me. I'm always willing to speak to people who have gone through loss. Um, I especially have a very soft spot for people in partner loss and particularly people who weren't married yet, just because I know that there's such a deficit in that area. And I can also be found on Instagram, which seems to be very popular with people who are experiencing loss these days at Learning About Grief. And if you're on Twitter, because my name is too long, it's Learn About Grief. Um, and I would love to have a conversation with anybody there. That's amazing. Yeah, I follow your Instagram. It's really good. It has a lot of nice tips for people and, and comments about just the grief journey and all the different you know, small things that people may not think about, think about that you're bringing up. And I think that's great because it helps normalize other people's experiences and what they're going through. So I just want to say I had a pleasure really talking with you and get to know you and really understand sort of the different types of losses out there and, and really what you've done to move forward to be in the state where, you know, like I learned a lot from you and I, and I'm really encouraged that people after suffering such trauma and change in their life that, they can still find a way to open their heart to the world and to help others around them. So I just want to thank you for just being you. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me and having this conversation and the work that you do. Uh, it's extremely needed and can't be done enough. So thank you. Excellent. Um, so yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you wanted to know more about the topic, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca. If you wanted to support the podcast, you can contribute through the links on our website, and we would like to thank all those who continue to support us. Uh, so on the website, you can find our online courses by Dr. Joshua Black and Jade Carling Black, and there are two courses. One is a Grief Dreams Workshop. So this is a course that's going to help you gain the necessary skills to discuss the topic of grief dreams in a way that facilitates the processing of grief. You're going to learn about the topics of sleep, uh, dreams in general, grief and trauma, and of course, grief dreams. And the second is called Crazy in Love, Using Romantic relationship as, Relationships as a Vehicle for Growth. And this super organic course is designed to make you rethink modern intimate relationships. Um, they discuss how to use your own intimate relationship or lack thereof to passionately fuel your personal growth and build the valuable skills that will last you a lifetime. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join our Grief Dreams podcast page to be notified of when we release our new episodes. And you can also join the Grief Dreams Facebook group uh, to share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. And we are on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. So as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you.
I have introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.